0: Welcome to the City Reach Baptist podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Open up your Bibles to the book of Acts tonight, Acts chapter 1. You know, have you ever thought about how amazing it is that when you put a key into the ignition, in the ignition of the car and turn it on, you know, typically, it's a three-step process. When you first put the key into the ignition, it's in the off position. Nothing is happening. The car is stationary, and you are not going anywhere. Then, once, when you turn the key once, you turn the key, and now the battery is turned on. And all the accessories in your car come on. The air conditioning, if it's on, it blows out at you, the, and you can use the radio, But still, there's no power in the engine, and the car's not moving anywhere. And then you turn it twice, and you turn it start, and you start the car, and that battery power now connects to the spark plugs, and the engine ticks over. And so you can now go somewhere. Well, as I thought about this, I thought, what is it that ignites the missional engine of the church and gets her moving forward on mission. You see, for some churches, it's like the key is in the ignition, but it's still in the off position. And they're not connected to the life. The church at Sardis was like this in the book of Revelation. She had a reputation of being alive, yet Jesus said, you are dead. You have all the machinery of the church, but there's no life. In the church. For other churches, it's clicked over and it's on, and the lights are on, and the music's playing, but it's just the cabin is just a comfortable environment for the people sitting in the car. The car's still not going anywhere. So, what is it that turns the key and ignites the engine of the church? What will turn the key and ignite the engine of our church? This has been a question that has been plaguing me for a little bit as I've thought about our Sunday night congregation, because our Sunday night congregation has basically plateaued. It's had a bit of a stalemate. I look out and I wonder, what is it, Lord? What is going to turn that ignition and ignite this congregation what is it, Lord, that is going to change things so that this congregation will move forward into the mission that God has for it? As Pastor Graham spoke before, the church in the book of Acts is the place to look. Because if there was ever a church that was ignited for the mission of God, it was the church in the book of Acts, the beginning. You have 120 people meeting in an upper room, but by the end of the book of Acts, they say these people have turned the world upside down with their preaching. Wouldn't it be amazing if the people said in Adelaide said, this congregation has turned the city upside down with their preaching, with their proclamation. But what about you? Is the key in the ignition... But is it off? Are you disconnected from the life of God? Is it on, and you're enjoying some of the life of God, but still your missional engine is not revving? What will ignite your missional engine and get you fired up for the mission that God has for us? Well, that's where we turn to the book of Acts. So if you haven't opened up your Bible yet, open it up to the book of Acts. And we're going to get started tonight in a new series on the Book of Acts. And as we open up to the Book of Acts, and as we start a new series, when we start to study a new book of the Bible, it's always important to ask the introductory questions. Like who is the author? Who is the intended readers? And what is the message of the book? And so let's look at those questions. Who is the author? Well, the first verse actually gives us a clue. Look down in your Bibles in the first verse. It says, the author says, in the first book, O Theophilus. So this book is part two of a two-part series. And Theophilus is mentioned in Luke's gospel. So this must be part two of Luke's gospel. So you have Luke's gospel, then you have the book of Acts. And church tradition and good reason suggest to us that the writer of the book of Acts, therefore, is the writer of Luke's gospel, which is none nah, other nah, than Luke, obviously. And there are three references in the New Testament which tell us about Luke. Colossians 4, verse 11, Philemon 24, and 2 Timothy 4:11. And all of these references are from the Apostle Paul's standpoint. And they teach us a number of things about Luke. The first thing that they teach us about Luke is that he was a doctor. He was a physician. And this is significant because oftentimes when it comes to the Christian faith, people think that Christians are stupid. People think that if Christians just got more information and more education, then we could educate the faith out of them. But actually, in the history of the church, many well educated people have been Christians. And Luke was such a person. He was a doctor. And he bought the precision that he had as a doctor to writing this book. We are told in Luke 4 verse 35, when he recorded there about the demoniac in Luke chapter 4, that he used the word convulsions to describe what was coming upon the demoniac. And he uses there the specific medical term for convulsions, whereas the other gospel authors just use a general term. So Luke, he brings his medical precision in writing this book. And over in Luke chapter 1, verse 3, he talks about putting an orderly account together. So this book is not just some piece of fiction that someone made up. This is actually an orderly researched account of the early church. But also we learn about Luke that he was one of the most valued and loyal friends of Paul. In 2 Timothy 4 verse 11, right at the end of his life, Paul said that Luke alone is with me. And this is significant because the book of Acts is about Paul. The first part of the book of Acts is about Peter. The second part is about Paul. And it's interesting, in Acts 16 verse 11, there is this change in the narrative where the personal pronoun is now used, meaning that Luke was there and I witnessed all of the events that happened from Luke from Acts 16 onwards. So this is not just some made-up fictional fairy tale, but this is something that Luke the physician wrote in an orderly and researched way. Now let's look at the reader of the book. Look down in verse 1 again. Luke says, "In the first book, O Theophilus." So the reader is Theophilus. Now, who was Theophilus? Well, some commentators suggest that Theophilus was this Roman, um, maybe governor or Roman official, and Luke was writing the books of Luke and Acts as in a bit of an apology. Now, not that he was apologizing for the Christian faith, but that just, just means he was writing a reasoned defense for Christianity for this Roman official, Theophilus. And certainly as you read through the book of Luke and the book of Acts, you see that Luke goes to great extremes to show how Paul is innocent of all charges. And Christianity isn't this, um, you know, just little cult group, but rather it is this amazing thing. And I think this is significant because if you are here tonight for the very first time and you're investigating the Christian faith, I want you to know that this book is for you. This book is for you. You see, Christianity isn't the sort of faith where we sort of hide everything away and don't let people see it because we're really afraid. Rather, Christianity, right from the very beginning, says, here's our truth claims, here they are, have a look, investigate them for yourself and see if they're true. And this is what actually Luke is doing in the book of Acts. Other people suggest that Theophilus, it's this... Two words that sort of come together in Greek. Theos, have you heard that word before? What is that word for? Greek word for? God. Good. Theos, God, and philos or phileo means love. And so some people say that this is a code word meaning lover of God or friend of God. So Theophilus wasn't actually a person, but rather this book is written for the friends of God. Is there anyone here who's a friend of God? All right, good. Yes, you at the back. Then this book is for you. So we see that the writer is Luke and the recipients are Theophilus, maybe us. But now let's have a look at the message of the book. What is this book about? Well, look back in verse 1 again. We read this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Do you notice that? He says, in my former book, the book of the Gospel of Luke, I taught about all that Jesus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so what is the implication for this new book? The implication, I think, is that this book is going to be about what Jesus continues to do and teach. Do you see that? Now this is really interesting because in the next paragraph, Jesus actually ascends up into heaven and the rest of the book is about the apostles. So how can this book be about what Jesus is continuing to do and teach when Jesus is in heaven? Well in chapter 2 of the book of Acts, this amazing event happened, the day of Pentecost. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was sent, and two things happened. People were indwelt by the Spirit, and Jesus received a new body, the church. You see, what is the church? The church is the continuing presence of Jesus in the world. The church is the body of Christ. It continues the work of Jesus in the world. Look up here. This is my finger, right? See this? This finger here, it's my finger, and it's got life in it because it's connected to my body. Because my finger is connected to my body, my life flows through my finger, and so it has life in it. But if Carl was to chop off my finger then it would be separated from my body. It would no longer have my life flowing through it, so it would be dead. It wouldn't be able to do that. Also, the reason that it can do that is because my head is telling my finger to do that. Jesus is the head of his church, and he directs his body. He directs his people. The church is the presence of Christ in the world. Now, when you think about this, we, we need a rediscovery of what the church actually is. We tend to think that the church is a building. The church is not a building. This is not the church. This is just a shed. This is not the church. We tend to think that the church is a service. It's like the 9 a.m. church, or I'm going to 10.45 church, or I'm going to 6 p.m. church. The church is not a service. If we view the church as a service, then we tend to buy into this idea of consumerism, that I come to church to get certain things, and if the church service isn't giving me those certain things, then I better go to another church service. No, 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 no. The church is the body of Christ. It's the presence of Christ in the world, and the church is also, the ministry is also not about professionals. We can tend to think that the church is about having really highly equipped and and gifted pastoral staff. Now, I'm grateful for our pastoral staff at City Reach Oakton, are you grateful for them? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we've got some great pastors. But the role of pastors is to equip the people for the work of the ministry. And in the book of Acts, what you see in the book of Acts is this amazing dynamic of of a people movement. And in fact, the two times where the church really grows, where it steps out, it's not the apostles that do it. In Acts chapter 8, when the church goes forth into Judea and Samaria, it's, Just average people taking the gospel and telling people about others is the reason why the gospel spreads down to Samaria. And then I love this. I was reading this today in Acts chapter 11 at the founding of the church at Antioch. The very first time that the gospel penetrated a language barrier and went to the Greeks in Acts chapter 11 with the founding of the church at Antioch. It says that unnamed Christians... Went to the city of Antioch and they started sharing the gospel with the Hellenists. And it says, The hand of the Lord was with them. And they saw many people come to Christ. And you don't even see the names of those people. The church at Antioch, this amazing church that then becomes the sending church for the rest of the book, was founded by unnamed people who just took the gospel with them. There's a strategy for church planting. You go up to Golden Grove, you take the gospel with you. There's so many people who come to Christ. We say, okay, we better send you a pastor. That's a strategy for church planting. You see, the church is a dynamic people movement indwelt by the Spirit taking the gospel forward. And you have these amazing summary statements in the book of Acts about the spread of the gospel. Acts 6 verse 7, the word of God spread. Acts 9 verse 31, meanwhile the church throughout Judea, uh, Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up. Living in fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Acts 12 verse 24, the word of God continued to advance. Acts 16 verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in faith and increased in numbers daily. Acts 19 verse 20, so the word of the Lord grew mighty and prevailed. In the book of Acts, it's not so much about the growth of the church, it's about the growth of the gospel. That the gospel is going forward in the world and prevailing throughout the world through people indwelt by the Spirit, taking the message forward. See, the church does have organizational elements, and we'll read about these in the book of Acts. Acts 6, they appointed deacons. Acts 14... The Apostle Paul appointed elders for the churches. But primarily, the church is a people movement, indwelt by the Spirit, taking the gospel everywhere they go. Now, it's interesting. When you read modern biographies of successful church pastors and you read how their churches grow, you, you read these, like, have you ever read biographies of successful pastors? Maybe you don't do that. Maybe that's just pastors who do that. <laughs> Probably. But when you read their biographies and you read about how they, 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 always, they always put it down to some method, you know, you go, if you get small groups, if you get small groups happening in the church, then the church will grow. If you have the latest and greatest lights and lasers, Wow. Then the church will grow. Now, I'm not saying you can't learn things from other people, but actually when you read the book of Acts, it is surprising what you find. You find things happening that the Holy Spirit does that can't be explained by natural causes. How can you explain tongues of fire coming and resting on people's heads? It's something you can't do, something I can't do. Acts chapter 9, God converts the biggest persecutor of the church, the Apostle Paul, and changes him into the greatest missionary that's ever lived. Can you do that? I can't do that. You see, the book of Acts puts us in this position where we have to get down on our knees and say, God, we need you to work in remarkable and extraordinary ways. While we be faithful, we need you to work. Now, Acts 1.8 has often been pointed out to be the structure of the book of Acts. Jesus said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so you see in the book of Acts this structure. The gospel first goes to Jerusalem. Then it goes to Judea and Samaria. And then it goes out to the ends of the earth. And at the end of the book of Acts, you see that that the book of Acts finishes in Acts 28 with Paul in prison in Rome. It's really fascinating. It ends really abruptly with Paul in Rome. And you're reading it and you're like, where's the rest of the story? (laughs) Why does it end like that? Some people have said, well, that's where Luke was up to. He didn't know anything more. So he didn't have anything more to write. But I actually think that what Luke is doing is he's using this very powerfully and he's saying, he's trying to invite us all into Acts 29. He's trying to invite us into this movement, this movement of God's spirit where we take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Will you step up and will you take the gospel everywhere you go? Will you step out and be one of his witnesses? This is what the book of Acts is inviting us into. But what will turn the ignition to ignite our missional hearts? Well, there are two themes that actually run through this book. Two Themes, very powerful themes, all right? The first one's found in verse three. So look down in your Bibles again. In my first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day. That's a really significant moment. We don't give the ascension of Jesus enough significance, but Pastor Carl is going to preach on it next week. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Look in verse three. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. The, the word 40 days there, very significant number. 40 days in the wilderness for the people of Israel. 40 days Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. And yet here, Luke is saying that there was 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And what Jesus did in those 40 days is he taught his disciples about the kingdom of God and he gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. Let me ask you a question. How many, how many proofs do you need? Jesus was to appear before you in physical form. Would you believe? How come Jesus had to give them many convincing proofs? And we read about them in the Gospels. He turns up on occasion and says to Thomas, have a look at my side, have a look at here. He eats fish with them, has breakfast with them. Why does he need to give them many convincing proofs? You see, because the first thing that will ignite our hearts for mission is being absolutely convinced of the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus is alive. What what prompted these men to go out on mission and to give their lives? They were convinced that Jesus was alive. To be convinced of something For your faith to be strengthened, you need evidence. You need reasons. And so Jesus gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. I was actually really fascinating. I was just actually, yesterday, I went through each one of their sermons in the book of Acts, all of the apostles' sermons. And do you know, an emphasis in their preaching was on the resurrection of Jesus, I don't think I do enough about the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus actually is alive. Francis Chan once said, are you living your life in the reality of the resurrection? Can your life only be explained by the fact that Jesus is alive? This past week, we had this beautiful lady in this church. We did her funeral, Mary Stringer, her name was. Absolutely brilliant lady. She had a resume that thick of articles she had written, education she had done for the kingdom of God. She was a Wycliffe missionary. And in the 60s, get this, her and another woman walked into the Waffa tribe in PNG. Walked in there, just her and this other woman without guards, Without anyone else, they walked into this tribe. What makes someone do that? To have that sort of courageous faith. Let me tell you, you will only have that courageous faith if you are convinced that Jesus is alive. And she had to eat the food that they ate, which was bats. And she had to drink their water. You know, when I go to Bali, I don't even brush my teeth In the barley water, I make sure I use bottled water. It blew me away. See, the first plank which will ignite our hearts for mission is when we are thoroughly convinced of the objective truth of the gospel. That Jesus died for our sins, but that Jesus is alive. And so it doesn't matter if people reject us. It doesn't matter if people take our lives. It doesn't matter. Jesus is alive. We will live with him in the kingdom of God. The reality of resurrection. But still, that's not enough. The second thing that will ignite our hearts for mission is the promise of the Father. Look down in verse 4. We read, And while he was staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, if you just turn back in your Bible to Luke 24, Luke 24 and verse 45 Luke records this incident at the end of his gospel. Jesus had appeared to his disciples, given them a convincing proof that he was alive by eating a piece of boiled fish. And then in verse 45 it says, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Why did they need this power from on high? Well, it's because at the crucifixion of Jesus, they were afraid. Even though Peter boldly said, Jesus, though all others may deny you, I never will. Jesus said to him before the rooster crows, you will deny knowing me three times. He wasn't a witness, Peter. He had no courage. And so Jesus said, you need to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, and you will be clothed with power from on high. You will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit came, and they were baptized by the Spirit, and this same Peter who couldn't even stand up in front of a slave girl, stood up in front of a massive crowd and declared the resurrection of Jesus, and 3,000 people responded. You see, it's not enough just to be convinced of the reality of the resurrection. You need the power from God. Now, our Pentecostal brothers would read this verse here, the baptism with the Holy Spirit, and they would believe that what this is setting up is a two-staged experience. That you come to Jesus, and then you wait, or you tarry, and then later on you receive a second blessing, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as evidenced by speaking in tongues, and you're clothed with power from on high. But I would say that when you look at the rest of the New Testament, you find that Paul uses almost the exact same phrase in verse 5 in Greek over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and he talks about us being baptized by the Spirit into one body, the church. So I don't think that their system is right. I think that what the Scriptures teach is that when you receive Christ... You receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You are immersed with the Spirit. But yet, even though these believers were baptized in the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, later on, they would still experience the filling of the Spirit. They would need to be refilled. So that they could stand boldly for Christ as his witnesses. Do you need to be refilled by God tonight? Now, to be filled with the Spirit does not mean that you get any more of the Spirit, but rather that the Spirit gets more of you. You surrender to Him. You give over your life to the lordship of Christ and you surrender again to Jesus. You confess your sin. You bring yourself low before him and say, God, by faith, I want you to have more of me. In the words of Romans 12, verse 1, I offer myself to you as a living sacrifice. Fill me with your presence, Lord God. About a month ago, we had at City Reach a gathering of all of our City Reach staff. And Pastor Andrew was leading us in prayer through the churches, through the letters to the churches of Revelation. And as we were praying through and using those letters of Jesus to the churches, God spoke personally to me. That I had left my first love. And God spoke personally to me that I was like the church at Sardis. I had a reputation of being alive, and yet I was on the verge of death. And I I wept, and I don't know whether the other staff heard me, but I wept with one of those deep, deep weeping, you know, that just comes out of you, that just a deep grief Maybe what this congregation needs is that sort of thing, is a deep turning back to Jesus. Because we'll never be able to do the work of Jesus without the power of Jesus. Jesus actually said, without me, you can do nothing. Nothing. If we lose connection to the head, then we'll have no strength for ministry and for what God is calling us to. I listened to Mark Sayers. I think he's, a, he's got some really valuable insights. And he was saying at an evening service in his church, he just said at the end of the church service, he said, we need to pray. And so he called the people forward. And they just spent some time in prayer because he said, I don't know what's going on, but there's something that's not right. The life of God is not flowing like it should through this church. So we need to pray. and We need to return to the Lord. You see, what will ignite, ignite us for mission is the reality of the resurrection and the power of the Holy Spirit. And you don't need to go to some Pentecostal church to experience the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, as we read tonight, His ministry is to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ in our affections. And to honor Christ and cherish Christ and love Christ. What you need to do is get serious with Jesus. Surrender to Him afresh. Confess your sin that you've been hiding. And say, Lord, use me. And then step out in faith with courage, taking courage in your hand and faith in the promises of God and saying, I will be your witness, Jesus. And just see how God uses you. See how he puts words in your mouth and gives you boldness and courage to stand for him. So this is going to be an amazing study of the book of Acts. But may God change us and revive us so that we can be a revived people, so we can reach out to others with a revived heart. Let's stand together.